Hello, and welcome to Furloughed, defining moments worth talking about. I'm your host, Leonard Cochran, and Steve Otterstrom is my co-host here with me today. And Steve, this is our Labor Day issue of our podcast. So, uh, and it's it's kind of funny thinking about the weekend. Uh, I've heard many people, it, COVID seems to be subsiding a little bit in some people's mind anyhow. So traffic on the roads is picking up mm-hmm. and some people actually might be going places. Uh, I know someone in my family went camping for the weekend, and I thought to myself, a long weekend, hmm, <laughs> just like last week and the week before <laughs> and the week before. So uh, how are you doing, Steve? Yeah, <laughs> Any you, reflections on Labor Day or anything else? <laughs> it's so interesting because you're you're right, like being in a in a new environment, and I, I feel like I'm, I'm employed again because I'm self-employed, and I, I definitely am staying very busy, but... One of the things, and I know that uh, you're doing a lot of work, especially with Upwards Unlimited, um, but one of the things with being self-employed is holidays have no real savor to them. (laughs) It's just a day you're not getting paid. And uh, I mean, I'm always happy for a day off, but I have days off already. It's called the days when I didn't have a contract to work on. (laughs) And so, you know, there there are times I'm like, oh, I don't have anything this Friday. So maybe this Friday is when I'll get things done here at home. But it's kind of like holidays just kind of happen organically. And to have everyone go, oh, enjoy your long weekend. I'm like, oh, that's why I didn't get any contracts (laughs) on Monday. (laughs) Exactly. Yes, yes. And don't forget the mail will not run today, kids. Yes. So there you go. We can't send anything out. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I I was actually uh, on my app with the bank account and going to do something. And it's like, why is it not going to transfer that money until Tuesday? And then I went to my other calendar. It's like, oh, today's a holiday. Of course, the bank's not going to electronically transfer on a holiday because the computers have the day off, apparently. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I was even excited to see. Hey, what 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 are my stocks doing today? And nothing. <laughs> yes. that's what they're doing today. They're yeah. they're sitting there, which resting and waiting. Yeah. Well, if you have tech stocks after last week, it might be a good thing they're doing nothing today from what I hear. Yeah, so. So, <laughs> of course, that's the thing. If you're trading stocks, there's there's times people come up and they'll say, oh yeah, I heard there was a real bad day on the stock market. And I really feel like it's just like news agencies once in a while look at the stocks and go, oh, they're down 5%. But anybody that trades, they're like, well, yeah, there was... There was a sale on Friday, and we were really excited about that. <laughs> you know it, that that uh, yeah, stocks go up and down. But if you trade, you you really have to just think when stocks go down, there's a sale on the market, and this is where you go in, and you and you hopefully have some cash available to buy. And it can be just yeah. as exciting when you have downtimes because it's an opportunity to to buy more. You know, provided that during the uptimes you remember to sell something so that you have some cash to play with. <laughs> yes, but yes. Anyways, I, I, we don't want to go into that in too much detail because I do not want to give any um, thing that is in any way perceived as fiduciary advice because yes, I don't there you want go. to go to jail. <laughs> SEC, Le- <laughs> I did not give fiduciary advice. <laughs> yes, Le- legal disclaimer here. Yeah. So, and, and, and just a general nor- disclaimer, most anything Leonard and I say is just complete garbage. You can put it yeah. to the side. No, we, we do believe yeah. in what we say, but um, that doesn't mean yes. we're right. We, 
we we do believe it, but you don't have to. How's yes, that? Yeah. And uh, don't 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 take it as legal advice or otherwise. <laughs> otherwise. Uh, just just or, take it as two guys' opinions or medical so. or yeah. Yeah, yeah, none of that. So, and speaking <laughs> of uh, speaking of opinions, we talked about voting last week, and I know everybody seems to have strong feelings about voting. I was on LinkedIn this morning, and uh, someone made a post that was very political in nature, and it was interesting. I don't know why I read the comments underneath, but it was just terribly interesting on a professional platform to see where people would go and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just as a gentle reminder to our listeners, people do read what you post on LinkedIn. Uh, but that being said, uh, it, it got my mind stirring and even prior to just for the fact that we did talk on voting last week. Um, one of the things that came to mind was sometime back, I had written an article on how to handle conflict. And I, I felt it was really timely, really not trying to self-promote, but I did think it was such a timely article to kind of revisit and to talk about how to handle conflict, because we seem to have, um, let's just say it in a nice way, we seem to have a deficit of the appropriate way to handle conflict in our current culture. Mm -hmm. Would that be a a fairly accurate statement for you, Steve? Oh, I think so. (laughs) I think uh, especially as we become more galvanized and as we become more um, us versus them, as, yes. as we become, I, we use the uh, term a while back in another one of our uh, podcasts and talking about in being entrenched and mm. the deeper we dig our heels into a position, the less likely that our conflict will be productive and more likely that our conflict will be destructive. Mm. Yes. Yeah. So true. So true. So let's go ahead then and kind of dig into handling conflict. And I I know, Steve, you did some research. Love the fact you're a research guy. That way I don't have to. (laughs) Uh, So I love research when somebody brings it to me. It's just finding it that uh, is my difficulty. So you did some research and found there's actually some historical methods of handling conflict. And I thought it was interesting. And I, I I don't want to run down the rabbit hole of getting too historical, but it, it did shed a little bit of light on some things. So if you would, I think you had two or three that you kind of summarized pretty well before we began. Uh, so if, if you want to kind of talk a little bit about that and maybe, uh, maybe we can go ahead and pick up from there and, and share some insights as to uh, what I've found to be some best practices and uh, what we've seen just ourselves as well. Of course. And then, you know, as I talk through this, really, this is in very many ways an oversimplification of how we've dealt with conflict um, throughout the centuries uh, that human beings have been, you know, fighting with one another. I think some people may argue that uh, the first tool that uh, a human ever used was a rock to hit another human on the head with, you know, um, so... Certainly, trying to knock some sense, into it, perhaps, or, or knock the sense out of them, whatever it may have been. <laughs> because yeah. generally, when we get to that point, I'm not sure we, we really have much of a goal other than to 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 cause as big an impact as possible. So, of course, you know, some of these these concepts are, are really going to be oversimplified, and somebody who really digs into this will say, "Wait a minute, that idea was around long before," and that's probably true. Uh, but if we look at, at really kind of the history of conflict, probably a really good starting point would be um, ancient Greece. 
and looking at the advent of the adversary system. And, and that is a good one to look at because it is a big part of where we're at today. The adversary system is what our legal system, um, not just in the United States, but in most of the Western world, or maybe all of the Western world, our ad- an adversary system is what our legal system is based off of, which is this idea that there was a winner and there was a loser in every conflict that comes up. And even back then, when this was when the adversary system really kind of became something, you had two main thoughts behind this. You had uh, Aristotle, who said the adversary system is the best way to arrive at truth, because if you take two individuals and all things being equal, if they start to fight out uh, one on one side of a con. Uh, of a concept and another on the other side of a concept and they and they both fight with equal force then probably what will happen is whichever one is true or right is most likely to prevail because it has a natural advantage and actually that's the whole concept behind zealous representation of a client in our legal system today is this concept that as a prosecutor i have no need to to worry about the defense although there are some ethical things that go into that today. We don't need to get into it, but just in a very basic way. Um, I don't need to worry about the defense. My job is to work at prosecuting this as strong as I can. And the defense, on the other hand, doesn't have to say, I don't need to worry about if this person is actually innocent or guilty. My job is just to fight as strong as possible. And truth gives a natural advantage to whoever is actually in the right. That was kind of the concept that Aristotle had. However, Plato said, that is ridiculous. We are actually just rewarding winning over actually finding truth. And so both actually don't have a goal to finding truth. They both have the goal of of winning the argument. And so he believed that that actually was antithetical to finding truth. Either way, the adversarial system exists in the way we approach conflicts today. So now moving forward into modern times, we actually come up and, 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 and probably the, the father of the concept of the win-win is someone named uh, Morton uh, Deutsch. And he basically says that, okay, let's put the adversarial system aside. Or if, you've, if you study this kind of thing, there's actually something called game theory that goes into it as well. But let's put that aside. There are two kinds of, of conflict um, out there. You have your competitive conflict, which is that is the adversarial, someone wins, someone loses. But what really revolutionized the um, way of approaching conflict that he brought into it is he said that a more common one that we miss out and we actually misdiagnose and we, we say that it is a competitive conflict is the pure conflicts. And the pure conflicts are where both parties can fully win that you don't have to have a winner, you don't have to have a loser, you don't have to have a negotiation where you meet in the middle. But he said most of our conflicts or many of our conflicts actually are pure and both parties can fully win. Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, it's like <laughs> I have to unpack that just a little bit. Yeah, because this, we'll this, jump into this seems odd. And if you're listening to this, you might be thinking, wait, that's not possible because I got in a fight last night with my wife or with my husband <laughs> And um, it was impossible because we were we were fighting about, you know, 
if the toilet seat should be left up or left down. And that one, you know, it's going to either be up or, or it's going to be down. And if you look at this, and actually a, a lot of uh, people who are really um, professionals in this realm are really studied it deep. Like, for example, there's this um, uh, Professor uh, Michael uh, Deuce, uh, I think it's Deuces, it's, I've, it's written and I don't read. You all know that, right? Um, <laughs> he's a senior lecturer um, in communication at the University of Arizona. And um, he said conflict does not arise so much out of the difference, out of a difference itself, but from the perception we have of a difference. So in this case, you know, you're looking at we're fighting whether the, the toilet seat should be up or the toilet seat should be down. Well, there is probably a value that um, both parties have. And, you know, the value is comfort <laughs> in doing what you need to do, right? And so there might be something where both parties could completely win. And maybe in the household, there are two bathrooms. And in the end, I will take this bathroom, you will take the other bathroom. I will leave my seat up, you will put your seat down. We both completely 100% won. And if, if you would, Steve, read that quote by Michael again one more time, sure, if you would. Sure. So I, I tried to jot it down, but I want to make sure I captured it correctly. Conflict does not arise so much from a difference itself, but from the perception we have of a difference. Mm. That That's good. We look at the difference and saying, this is a place I cannot move forward from here. Um, and that leads to that entrenchment that we talked about, which makes you know, conflict destructive, more destructive than constructive, where if we can change our perception of the difference itself, we might be able to turn this conflict in fr from something that's destructive into something that ends up becoming constructive. Yeah. And, and what I'm really hearing out of that too, is it's no longer binary, either right, wrong, left, mm -hmm. right, up, down, whatever the case is, it's no longer binary, but it, it's looking deeper for other options. And uh, I, I think, you know, we, we had a little little conversation prior to the recording begin, and I think a great example, uh, it, rather than the toilet up or down, we'll talk about the trash getting to the side of the road, <laughs> That's right? a better conversation so, piece, right? <laughs> we, we, we occasionally have that conflict, yeah. both of us being males, uh, where suddenly there's an explosion of why isn't the trash down by the side of the road or why isn't carried outside to the dumpster, you know, it's spilling over on the floor in the kitchen and so on. And of course, in my house, that's my job to do that, or at least somehow have been delegated that mm -hmm. authority. Nonetheless, when that explosion comes, sometimes we go back and revisit the conflict after it's over, after I've tucked tail and taken the trash where it belongs. Now I'm having a little fun, but mm -hmm. in seriousness, what, we, what, what oftentimes will happen once a conflict arises and we get past that conflict, then we go back and sort of reflect on it. And this is best if you can do this. Uh, I give a little advice here. It's best if you can do it with the person with whom you had the conflict, but certainly self-reflection is valuable in itself to begin to dissect what was the cause of the conflict. And of course, immediately our listeners are thinking, well, yeah, Leonard, you should have carried the trash down to the side of the road. 
but we can always uncover there might be evidence prior to that of tensions building prior to the trash not being taken down to the road. You know, maybe I was watching the football game for the 500th week in a row mm-hmm. and not doing my job. Maybe I had not done something else and it gave tension to uh, my wife. And, and so the aggression and the anxiety about the trash was simply a place to vent that frustration. And so it's important to kind of go back and work backwards to uncover that. And that helps avoid the conflict in the future if we can by being sincere about that. And this, this happens in real arguments as well. I mean, trash is something small, but it, it, it happened in my own life, right? And Steve, I imagine it's happened to you as well. Oh, absolutely. Where you have a conflict with somebody, you have to work it out. And then eventually you can go back after the ordeal, once everybody's calm and kind of talk through and you find out there's so much more to the story than the initial conflict. Well, two really important elements that, um, again, um, Professor Michael Deuce um, points out is and this goes right along with what you're saying, you know, that he calls it punctuation. So you have empathy and you have punctuation. I'll come back to empathy in just a second, but punctuation, uh, what he says is the way each party perceives and defines the chain of events in a conflict. And in many ways, like at first when I hear that, I'm like, well, why does that really matter? Why, why is punctuation so important to how we resolve a conflict? Um, because in the end, what, why is the chain of events so important? But if I think back and especially it's easier, I think sometimes to think of the conflicts we have with the people closest to us, uh, like a spouse, for example, um, if I think back to some of our, our most difficult, um, conflicts, it's often been the chain of events that really ended up becoming the sticking points. You know, Mm -hmm. when you said this, I felt this way. Well, that's not even what I meant by that thing. And I was more upset because of what had happened the day before when you did this and that. You know, that it's a misalignment of the chain of events actually makes it very difficult for us to resolve these conflicts where if we can get that chain of events, uh, if we can get if we can get our timeline right, the conflict almost always resolves itself. So it, mm. it ends up being, oh, so what you really meant when you said this was that, okay, well, that changes what I would have thought <laughs> and when I became yeah. upset. So I think it even goes into if, if we're trying to have more constructive rather than destructive conflict, really figuring out that punctuation. Take the time to figure out the timeline because within that is probably where you're going to find those differences in how we perceive the conflict that are actually causing the conflict. Remember, just like, just to say it again, conflict does not arise so much from a difference itself, but from the perception we have of a difference. And, and defining that means fixing our timeline almost always. The other thing uh, that he brings up is empathy. And when he talks about empathy, he points out that empathy is not really so much understanding or feeling what another person is feeling. Empathy is a communication skill. It is your ability to communicate to somebody that you understand the emotion that they have. You just feeling it is an empathy and it's not enough and it's not going to help you in the conflict. 
you have to figure out how to express that emotion. Hmm. That's, that's good right there because you know, we <laughs> just a lot of thoughts running through my head here, but so many times uh, when we talk about empathy, of course, uh, most everybody, if you ask them what it is, they're going to say something to the effect of, oh, it's putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, walking mm-hmm. a mile in their shoes. And that is empathy. But yet at the same time, I might walk a different mile in your shoes than you might walk in your shoes. Yes. And so and my so shoes that does me. And so you walking <laughs> yes. a mile in, in my shoes is going to be a completely different experience for you. There you go. And that's a great analogy, right? And so I could potentially still put myself in your position but not necessarily have some of the same emotions or the, some of the same experiences as you have. And so I think, I think that's powerful to be able to then, as he is saying from what you've said, is just a matter of expressing that, whether it's verbalizing it or somehow communicating that the understanding of it. Uh, and that certainly would demonstrate empathy. You know, I know, uh, especially if we're talking sales and things like that, you know, if I heard you right, what I'm hearing you say is, and then you put it into your own words rather than just quote back what you've just heard, and that will help uncover what is underneath that to make sure that you are indeed understanding correctly. And so that's a great, great tool there. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, Leonard. Um, I mean, you've had a lot of experience. You've worked in a lot of teams, and and I know that you actually, you know, wrote the article that you you shared about um, conflict. Um, what has been your experience with, with conflict in the past, um, that kind of led you to wanting to dissect it to the level that you have? Like what, what was it that led you to, to saying, oh, you know what? I think I need to know more about conflict or I need to share yeah. what I do know about conflict. Yeah, no, thanks, Steve. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, I've, I've been fortunate in a lot of the positions that I've held in the past where I've been in a leadership role and, and certainly whether it's volunteer or on the job either way. And uh, in particular, uh, at one point in time, I had uh, a lot of responsibility. But prior to being in the position I was in, I worked for a guy that just didn't do his job well as a leader. Uh, there was tension among the team. Uh, we had, uh, a, well, it was a group of about 60-odd people. And uh, so there was always some tension. And this guy had the wonderful method of uh, just sort of throwing a bomb in the room. I don't know how else to describe <laughs> it. But basically, you know, he would just lay down the law. This is the way it is. And then eventually he got to go home and I was left and I was number two in command. And so I would still have to get the team to be productive. We, we literally were in a production environment. And so I would be the one that had to pick up the pieces and make sure the work still got done because of the timeline that we had and the needs and demands of business and so on. And so it really um, gave me, <laughs> I love the positive speak. I've been in the corporate world for a while, <laughs> but it, it gave me the opportunity to learn how to do that. And, uh, you know, if we, the environment I was in was kind of a three strikes, you're out type of a thing. You know, you do the write-ups, do a second write-up, do a third, and then by golly, we got to make a decision here. Mm-hmm. And uh, so oftentimes I would be assigned the task of handling the write-ups. And then eventually 
this guy left and I moved into his position. So I was the number one guy on the shift that I worked and still trying to work through some of the past histories that he had left as he went out the door Mm -hmm. and some of the tensions. Nonetheless, though, uh, when it came time for write-ups, I knew that what had done before, what had been done before, was not productive. You know, the people became embittered towards him, became embittered towards leadership, and I could see there was this us versus them mindset of the team. Mm-hmm. And it was. I mean, we had we had our actual supervisors versus our line level. You know, supervisor salary versus hourly, and that mindset was pretty entrenched in the team. And so when I would do a write-up, I would try and work through it in such a way that it would, as much as possible, still keep that person happy that they had been written up. Now, I know that sounds horrible, (laughs) but that's ultimately kind of what I was doing because I knew if I could give somebody a write-up and them be at least somewhat happy or at least not insulted that they had been written up, that they would still be a productive employee, work would still get done, and we would all be much happier for it. And eventually it came to the point my boss was continually giving me the write-ups. And it's like, why do I have to do the write-ups? I hate it. And he he just very simply said, Leonard, nobody likes it, but you just do it so well that they really don't even know what hit them. Something to that effect. (laughs) And I thought, so that gave me pause for kind of reflection. And then over the years, I've just had a chance to kind of go back to that and revisit it because I've, I've seen people handled conflict in ways that I thought was just horrible. And uh, especially, you know, whether it's a marital conflict or whether it's a conflict with a friend. And so it just sort of began to mull that over and reflect it on it. And so I, I came up with a few things and this particular article you're referencing, Steve, I actually came up with 10 things and we don't necessarily have to dive into all 10, but just some very simple practices. And uh, so, I mean, in, in our current environment, I recognize when we're talking politics, okay, technically, maybe that's not a conflict, but we do have a lot of angst about how you vote, how I vote. And so that does create a conflict, right? Mm-hmm. Um I mean, we've got a plethora of things we could look at, and I don't want to go down any one specific, you know, we talk politics, we talk Black Lives Matter, we talk gun control, we talk marital conflict. If I get too specific in any one, you're not necessarily going to hear the words that I'm suggesting uh, the way to resolve. Uh, But I do love my number one suggestion here, and this, I think, is across the board effective. It's remain calm. Screaming will not fix things faster. <laughs> you sure? Common sense, folks, right? You sure? Because I've, I've always felt like, especially, you know, in a, in a heated marital conflict, that <laughs> you just need to be stronger in your position, right? <laughs> yeah. Just, and, and isn't that so true, right? You know, it's the peacock feathers. I'm going to make myself look bigger, stronger, mm-hmm. and badder, and you're going to back down, and I'm going to win. And that's what I find so interesting about what you talked about, you know, how that adversarial system, yes, you may well win. Uh, What's the expression? You might win the battle, but not win the war, right? (laughs) Well, and so that's that's a a, a truism there that I have. And I think that's really the interesting thing about 
the adversarial system versus a true um, or pure conflict um, is that the adversarial system really isn't a winning system. That um, as much as I admire Aristotle's thought, <laughs> I don't believe that truth has such an advantage that it will overcome our ego-driven desire to win. And when we're in that ego-driven desire to win, winning ends up being a loss because all we gained was getting our way and we didn't go any further beyond that. Yeah, think about it. If we crush our adversaries, all we have is dust. <laughs> you know, we, we, we don't have anything in the end. But yet, if we can either win our adversary or at least come to a civil agree to disagree, then we have the potential of having um, a non-adversary in the future, a comrade, a friend, a partner in the future, rather than just uh, a continual adversary in every every front. Well, and I think sometimes the challenge we have is we have a hard time imagining not having an adversary. That we feel like, mm. you know, uh, and in fact, I've, I've heard this a lot where people was like, if we didn't have evil, we couldn't have good. And mm. so if that's the case, evil has the same value as good. Because yeah. um, it's it's only descending to the depths of something bad that allows you to become go higher. And I'm not sure that that really, I mean, maybe it's true, but I'm not sure it's an effective way of, of, of looking at things. That um, if we have the idea that we can have good and then we can have better, and then once we get to better, we can have something even better than that. That we don't have to have bad to have good. We just have to have a platform to improve upon and not yeah. necessarily um, a, an abyss to fall into in order to say, oh, look at, look at how, how well we're doing. Yeah. 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 That's so true. And even uh, of course, quick plug for Simon Sinek, infinite game, you know, and that's the emphasis of what he has is if we look at business as a game, as far as winning and losing, um, we we don't come out ahead of the thing, especially if we're talking to a competitor. You know, hey, I'm, I'm number one beating our competitors. Well, you may well be number one, but what happens once your competitor becomes number one? You know, somebody chose them. Uh, does that mean your product is no longer any good? Well, in the same way in a work environment, if I'm number one, if I'm the alpha male, as uh, the term is, mm -hmm. and, you know, I'm the big shot on the block, does that mean number two is no good? Well, it, no, that's not reality. Reality is it takes all of us to win. You know, throw it on a basketball court. Um, you know, if 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 uh, I'm the best player on the team and it's all about me, then I'm one person. How am I going to win a game alone? You know, I certainly might be pivotal in the game being win, pivotal in the game being win. One. Boy, my English is good today. I'll say that again real slow. I may be pivotal in the game being won, uh, but if the team isn't working with me, then there's no chance that I can score enough on my own. And that really, to me, I, I guess goes back to the necessity of handling conflict the way that I believe we do. Um, uh, the second item on here that I have is don't present yourself as superior or better than the person you are in conflict. And then <laughs> my sense of humor I have here, no one wants to agree with someone that's a jerk. And it really is true. You know, if, if a person can be of some uh, character of uh, 
of right uh, standing and not be insulting and can disagree and allow me to save face, allow me to maintain my character without feeling less than, then I'm going to have a, a much higher regard for that person, even if I don't mm-hmm. get my way in that conflict. And I think that's vital. You know, this is a, a really interesting point I think you bring up, and it's um, something that uh, I, I, I discovered many years ago, and it's it's something I still absolutely struggle with. So if you have the key to getting beyond this, then I would be happy to hear what this is. But, you know, um, when I learned that um, in order to feel anger, we generally have to also feel superior. That um, in order for me to be angry at someone, it may not be an ongoing emotion. It may be that when when I'm angry with someone I, I genuinely care about, that during that moment of anger, I have this, this, this sense of superiority and then it's fleeting, it goes away. <clears throat> but either way, no matter what, um, I don't know how a person feels anger without feeling superior. Uh, even as I struggle with political things, <laughs> I, I have very passionate political feelings. I'm not someone who's actually on the fence right now. I I feel one way and it's and it's strong. And when I see the other side of things, it's easy to go, "Oh, how stupid!" or use names that um, that demean yeah. an entire group. Um, and it's yeah. it's it's just so natural, and well, it and it justifies think- my emotion in being angry. But if I have empathy yeah. with them then I see them as an equal and then it doesn't justify my values to the degree that I want to justify those values. Um, When I I suggest, Steve, for me, that's where I think where uh, Michael Doucet, uh, where he talks about that punctuation. All right. So let's let's revisit that for a moment, the chain of events leading to conflict. mm -hmm. So, what you then have to do is most often time our angst in conflict is not the actual person, but it's the actions of the person. See? So it's a mm-hmm. subtlety there, but we have to separate it and understand, you know, that overall Steve's a good guy. Occasionally he's a jerk. Well, what makes him a jerk? <laughs> well, only when he does this is he a jerk. Mm-hmm. And so it's a behavioral issue. Or, or, you know, it's something you're doing that causes angst to me, you know. And so what I have to do then is recognize it's not you that I'm in conflict with, but it's what you're doing that I'm in conflict with. And so then I can approach it, not that I necessarily need to attack what you're doing, but you will handle it much better if I attack what you're doing than if I attack you. Yeah. What? And that's that's... You know, so that's one of the things that, again, I kind of hit on here is to uh, not attack the individual. You know, one of the things we have a tendency to do, uh, number six on my list here, is we use absolute words. All right. So let's go back to a fun, less tense example Mm -hmm. of the garbage not being down in the road. Well, if I'm told you always forget the trash and never take it out. I didn't hear the fact you needed the trash taken out. I heard that word always. That's an absolute Mm -hmm. word. 
you just told me I never take out the trash. And I know that I do. I just forgot it this time. Maybe the time before and the time before, but usually I remember. So when you use an absolute word, I'm going to defend myself rather than defend my behavior because I I can prove that you're not true in what you're saying. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, and it's an indefensible uh, stand to take. And But it's so easy yeah. to do. Even I was looking at your number six, um, and I think that's the one you're – yeah, it is. Yeah. And it says, never use absolutes. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Never yes. use absolutes. Right. Absolutely. Never use absolutes. <laughs> <laughs> and it just, it's just like it's so hard to take out of because it's our brains just see things in such a binary way that um, it, it's a constant struggle to try and see things in a in, in a it doesn't have to be you know, one or two, it can be something that lies in between, or it can be something completely different, or it can be both at the same time. You know, it's, it's very difficult to take those absolutes out. And, you know, it's it's really interesting as you were, as you were talking and, and and I really am, you know, trying to figure out how do I deal with sometimes the, and I think I'm not the only one. I'm pretty sure that, uh, right now in our current political climate, on, on both sides of the aisle, people who would be completely opposed to my, my personal views of where things are at politically, we would have this same challenge in seeing each other as equals in this fight. <laughs> that, yeah. that obviously I feel the way I do from their perspective because I'm an idiot uh, or because I've been deceived or because of this or because of that. But things that allow them to be in some way, maybe they pity me, but no matter what, they wouldn't be able to see me as an equal just as I would be struggling. And I think something that really, really hit me about what you were saying, and it was going back to the punctuation side of things, is one thing I, I can't say I've ever really done is tried to sit down and construct the timeline that led my adversary to see things from the perspective they see them in. And I really would be curious if I attempted to do that how that might alter my perspective at the very least i I might not agree at that point but i might be able to feel empathy and to be able to respect the opinion that they have well and i would even propose steve as you're talking about it and explaining from your perspective what what interesting thing pops out to me is you've you've mentioned many times about seeing your adversary or seeing that person in conflict Mm -hmm. as an equal not to slice your legs out from under you, my friend, but when you use that term of seeing someone as an equal, what you are implying from that is that you're measuring. Mm-hmm. And there is a danger when we measure ourselves against someone else. So what we yeah. have to do is, yeah, so the conflict, again, isn't the person, it's the behavior or it's the action or whatever it is. And so we have to remove that measurement because yeah I, I you know how did you do in school we measure ourselves mm-hmm. a b c d e f or whatever the grading scale might be uh, i was number whatever out of my class when i graduated you know we constantly are in a measuring mode however measurement just by measuring automatically presumes that there's one better than the other so yes. if you go to the grocery store and buy milk 
is a gallon of milk better than a half gallon of milk? Mm-hmm. You know, they're both milk. One's just a larger measurement than the other one. And so you may have a large family and you may need a larger quantity of milk, but it's still milk. And so the value of the contents of the container is still the same. And so you have to somehow remove that measurement from your mind, kind of set that on the shelf, and again, go back to the actual conflict itself. And so it's not, you and I are not equals, we're just two people, period. Mm -hmm which I guess technically makes us equal. But the focus isn't on the equality. The focus is on that thing that we're trying to resolve. I think it goes, that make some sense? it makes a ton of sense. And I think it really goes into why we measure because most yeah, often well. I measure in a circumstance like this, in a conflict environment, the reason I'm measuring is to justify my emotion. That yes. if I measure yes, and, I de- and I determine that I am superior then it gives me permission to be angry with you. It be, gives me permission to belittle you. Yeah. So what's what's that's the law of physics, right? Uh, uh, you, you're going to know it quicker than I can say it probably, but an equal and opposite reaction. What's mm-hmm. what's that law? Do you know what that is? <laughs> <laughs> every action. Well, it's a Newton's. Is it is it, uh, first law of physics? The equal every yeah. action um, creates an equal and, an opposite equal and opposite reaction. reaction. Yeah. And so when we are handling conflict, that law of physics is not true. Mm -hmm. We need to remove that law of physics from our mindset. So I don't need to exert the same effort in fighting for my view, my whatever cause, as what you are exerting for yours to resolve the conflict. That's not going to bring resolve to the conflict. Because if I fight just as hard for my view as you fight for your view... All it's going to do is escalate that conflict and the conflict's not going to be resolved. Well, I think that goes back to, so if we talk about views, you know, your view and my view and, and they're fighting against each other. If we go back to um, uh, Morton uh, Dusch's uh, two types of conflict, how do we, how do we see that as a pure conflict? How do we, how do we have um, an, a resolution where um both sides can fully and completely win. And, mm-hmm. you know, if, I think in many ways, it's it's a matter of going back to like, are we really fighting about, is the conflict really about what, what about the issue or is the conflict, like we talked about earlier, about the way we perceive the difference? And, yeah. and I think especially um, in the political arena today, we can see that. And I, and I, I felt for a long time, and I think most people feel that reasonable people could get in and solve a lot of the problems that we see worldwide um, by just sitting down and having a reasonable conversation, that there wouldn't need to be a, a huge conflict. And I think because they're not as entrenched, they haven't gone through, like, think about our political system. If I became a politician, I would have to spend years in my political party, um, surrounded by people within my political party, uh, constantly believing that the people on the other side of the aisle are are just a degenerate form of, of human being. And then all of a sudden, those are the very people that are supposed to get together and come up with solutions. And, and exactly. I can't think of anything more adversarial than that, than you know, raising up someone who spent the last 20 years believing that the other side is is completely 
off and wrong and the worst thing that could happen to our country, them being right. the people who are somehow supposed to come up with um, not only middle ground, but a, a true full win, you know, type of resolution. And I, we, we talked about this a little bit and I don't, I certainly don't want to get too political, but for the most part, some of our hot button issues, people agree with on both sides, you know, like gun control. And I don't really want to get enough argument over the nuances of it, but both sides, whether you believe that you need to own a gun and carry it everywhere with you and the side that says you should not own a gun and not have it with you, they both have the idea that we don't want innocent people killed. Right. Like neither side is pro killing of innocence. <laughs> yeah. And, yes. and I feel like if you didn't have people so entrenched coming to the conversation that they would say, well, here's some obvious things that we could put into play that would help protect innocence and help protect people who, who don't deserve. To, and really, I can't think of anybody who deserves to be shot. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we all want a safe environment uh, to live in. And the challenge is, is that we can't see the forest for the trees in this conflict because we're so much fighting on the nuance of it. And rather than the, than getting down to the actual substance of what we all want to see happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's so true, Steve, because what you're alluding to there with that is, is really kind of number four on the list here. Uh, it, it, it applies, although I've written this for business, strive for a solution that serves the business and not the individual. So as a nation, we don't want people killing people with guns. Or with so, anything, or, really. <laughs> yeah, really. But the topic, though, if we I, want to stay on the yeah, laws for yeah. a moment without diving too super deep, we agree that people shouldn't kill people with guns. And so then if we could start with that and begin to work from there, we can we can have much more success rather than fighting about the Constitution and rights and privileges and you know, who's doing what, which environment and so on and so on. And I think that's that trust issue that we've talked about before, that it's really hard to have a collaboration without trust. And, and if you're going to take a, a, a conflict and turn it into a collaboration, that trust will have to be there as well. Yeah. That we will have to have, um, because we've all seen this before where reasonable minded legislation comes out, but either side is so entrenched that they believe that if I give an inch, they'll take a mile and they might be right. I mean, (laughs) when, when you're in a true adversary position, if somebody gives an inch and you can take a mile with it in an adversarial role, that's what your obligation would be. Yes, absolutely. And so one of the things that we have to do to get past some of that emotion is trust that that other person, that opposing view has a positive intent you know so the results might not be what i want or they might be handling it different but we have to kind of assume they have a positive intent you are not just out to destroy me it's not a vendetta but you have some positive motivation for what you're doing now i could be wrong in that but for us to save face and have a conflict and handle a conflict I at least have to be presenting it as though, surely to goodness, you have some reason to believe what you believe, and therefore I have to kind of treat you that way. 
And if I could for just a second throw something additional in here, Steve, uh, I, I'd heard it before and I've used it a lot and I cannot quote the source of it. So I apologize for that. Uh, but I've heard it said that there are like three or four levels of relationship. Okay. And so that first level of relationship is the surface level relationship. So you and I can talk about the weather, no harm, no foul. We're all good. We walk away and mm -hmm. that's the end of it. We all have those relations. Hey, how you doing today? I'm good. You're good. I'm good. Yeah, we're good. And that's all we talk about. And we're done. The next level of relationship is where we get a little bit more positional. We, t we share a little bit more information. So, you know, hey, which football team do you like? Ooh, you know, I can't stand the Chicago Bears. I'm a Cowboy fan. Well, I can't stand the Cowboys. I'm a Steeler fan. And so there is a possibility for some disagreement there, right? But yet, even if you like a different football team, most of society is not going to have angst against you. Mm -hmm. And then the next level, though, is where you and I go a little more deeper and share some more personal insights with one another. And that's when I become a little vulnerable and I say, hey, this is what I believe. This is what I do, so and so. And I explain that. I've allowed myself now to be open enough to you that you may well disagree with me and disagree firmly with me. Yeah. But for our relationship to continue then and to get the full depth of it, so we might call this our fourth level, is after having that, because that's an area of conflict now because you and I disagree about something, but to have a, a, a true lasting relationship you and I then can overcome our differences. We can overcome an area of conflict and then we will bond because of it. Now it might not happen every single time, but you will have a much stronger relationship once you've endured conflict with one another than having a relationship where there was never a conflict at all. Mm -hmm. And so the importance of overcoming conflict and handling conflict is just so important because we can have to, to resolve conflict, we have to know one another well enough to know positionally where they are, but we have to get beyond that position uh, and come to resol some resolve. And so kind of full back to the whole gun control issue, like I say, in the end, we can agree we don't want people shooting people in the United States, right? And so let's start from there and build that as a basis of our conflict, our, our conversation to handle which side is right and how we do it, rather than just focus on the things that we know we're entrenched on and, and totally fighting one another. And it is interesting, I think, of just in these circumstances, if we could just build that one line, <laughs> that one line that says, yes. this is what we agree on. This is our yeah. commonality. You know, I think um, looking at it, um, and this is so on the minds of everyone right now in the United States, like the Black Lives Matter movement, if we could just make that one line that says, we do not want people being brutalized by police. It doesn't mean that we believe that every policeman brutalizes people, <laughs> you know, but just, if we just that one line, we agree that we want to have a safer environment for people. And I think 
most police would agree with that. I, I would think it would be very rare you'd find one that says, no, the only way that we can be safe is if we can brutalize people. I mean, I've, I've, <laughs> I've known, um, I've been very close, um, I've had very close relationships with several police officers and, and, and many of them have really expressed frustration in not having better ways of handling tough situations that they want to have more ways to, in a less violent way. I mean, there's probably someone out there that got into the force because they watched cops as a kid and they saw them knocking people down and they thought, that's me. But <laughs> I think those people are bouncers. Personally, <laughs> yeah, but that's true. And, and many force. of them moved into mall security as well. But <laughs> And that's not fair because actually I, I'm working in hospitality. I, I worked with very, very fine uh, security personnel that really did, you know, I, there were some that just thought that they were some kind of superhero and we tried to get rid of them as soon as possible. But, you know, um, but for the most part, uh, yeah. there's this desire to to um, make communities safer and make people feel safer in their communities. And, mm-hmm. and if, if we can just start by acknowledging that we have the same, instead of instead of having a, one person says black lives matter. The other says blue lives matter. And then the other person, there's, there's trifecta. And the third person says all lives matter as if by right. saying, if I say black lives matter and, and I respond by saying blue lives matter, I'm saying the only way that blue lives are, 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 are protected is by killing black yeah, lives either. and black lives yeah. are saying the only way we protect, you know, and, and, and the all lives matter um, is saying, well, Actually, everyone's in the same boat, which we clearly are not. We're not all in the same boat. It's a lot safer for me as a white person to encounter um, uh, police than it is for a black person. And that's just the numbers. That's not um, whether or not people are actively trying to be racist. It's just the numbers. Yes. And, you know, if we could just take a deep breath and say, well, what we all agree on is we want safer communities. And I think, Steve, our current culture being what it is, is if we agree on one thing, you know, because my son was pointing it out, it, it's a zero-sum game that we're mm-hmm. trying to live in today. For whatever reason, our culture has led us to a zero-sum game, which takes us all the way back to the adversarial system, in which Aristotle was talking about, where it's winner-take-all and somebody loses, and so if we could just come to that baseline agreement, maybe come to that baseline steps of here's some actions we can take together and we're both in agreement, that doesn't mean we're stopping at that point. Mm-hmm. That's just the first step in resolving a conflict. It doesn't mean the conflict is resolved. If you and I can come to a mutual agreement, that's the starting point of handling the conflict. It's not the ending point. Well, I think in, in many ways, if you imagined a, a track and field meet where nobody knew where the finish line was, there would be no winners. And that's kind of where we're at right now is that we have um, in trying to create a, a an environment where we have that pure conflict where both people can or both both perspectives can be absolute, complete, 100 uh, percent fully winning. It means we have to find that finish line that accommodates that. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. and and the idea that we were going to race or we're going to fight over where the next waypoint is going to be is just a little ridiculous. You know, like yeah. we're, we're going to fight or, or whether we start on our left foot or our right foot, 
to get to where we want to be. Uh, but the point is we want an environment that is safe. We want neighborhoods that are safe. We want people to grow up um, and not have to uh, fear authority because in the end, we, we we're too large a society not to have authority. <laughs> we can't go to anarchy. It just, it's, it's not going to work. Uh, but we, well, yeah. And I can tell you from back to the work world situation that there have been times where somebody was well intended and did the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And they, it doesn't mean that that was the end of the whole situation. Then it's okay. You did this, you got the wrong results. It was a poor decision. Let's regroup and make a right decision. So we're not repeating the pattern instead of just saying, that's it. You're fired. You're gone. You know, and so in this case, we can't fire America. <laughs> we can't <laughs> no. fire people. But what we can do is acknowledge, okay, yeah, you know, again, maybe have to assume a little bit of positive intent, you know, because we have a number of systems in this country that are broken. And I mean, welfare, immigration, all of these hot button mm -hmm. issues we have, let's admit it, they aren't working the way they were intended to work unless we just assume a negative intent and somebody's mm -hmm. out there trying to screw up everything. But let's assume some positive intent here for a moment and say, hey, maybe they were implemented with some positive intent. Now what can we do to move forward? We don't have to finish the race yet, but let's move forward. No. And I, I understand positionally, you know, we're talking about lives currently, uh, we're talking about some conflicts that impact people's lives. And so there is an urgency to mm -hmm. get to a finish line much quicker. I do understand that. However, we're human beings. And so it's a continuing race and it's a marathon. And we've just got to continue to move forward in iterations because none of us are perfect and we're going to continue to fail. And that's where, again, handling conflict, we have to recognize that as well. You know, if I expect perfection out of you, I'm going to be sorely disappointed. And if you expect it out of me, you're sorely going to be disappointed. But we can at least come together with some agreement of, hey, let's change this behavior and not do this again. Or let's work towards this and try a different way of doing it because the way we've been doing it hasn't worked. Well, you know, we, we talked actually a little while back about like the, uh, the Christmas Day truce uh, during World War One. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I find that to be just a very interesting social experiment from the perspective that um, in many ways, as we talk about finding that common value that, that we both want, maybe on both sides of an argument, that once we find that common um, value, it's much less difficult for people or organizations yes. to manipulate us. Um, yes. That in that Christmas Day truce, once they had gotten out of the of, of the um, trenches and went over and actually sang with these people and saw human beings on the other side, it was much more difficult for the powers to be to get them to fight one another after that. And they never yeah. really fought with that same gusto. They kind of just, you know, there was this idea of let's kind of let it play out. I don't want to kill the person I stood next to. And right. where we do have... And, and maybe this is my blind spot, but I do feel like we do have some organizations and some perspectives, some, some groups that don't actually have the best interests of certain groups involved in mind. Mm. You know, I think there are, there's no doubt about it. Uh, there is systemic racism, which is the system 
for lack of a better word, accidentally leaves a group out. And we fix the system and the racism disappears. And then there's um, overt racism where somebody truly holds a racist view and that's what they're fighting for. However, because that's really not a popular stand to take, it seems like they find ways to sneak it in and couch it with another value that a person has. You know, I think we, we actually see this in our immigration system quite often where um, racism is framed as uh, saving jobs for people who live in America or racism is uh, framed as, uh, you know, we're trying to keep diseases or things from crossing over our borders uh, and, and not, you know, those, those other things, you know, I want to have a job and I want to be disease free. Um, those are actual values. But once, once we um, have actually said, well, what is our goal behind immigration? What is it that we want to actually accomplish? Well, one is we want to make sure that we have enough work, uh, enough workers for the work that needs to be done here. And, and uh, maybe right now we're in a different situation where there's not a lot of work here in the United States. But back in the, in the past, I, I know that uh, working in human resources, we, we struggled to fill positions. Like we did not have enough bodies for the positions that needed to be filled. So that could be a goal. Or maybe the goal is also um, we are a nation that has prided ourselves on welcoming uh, the refugee. Uh, you know, that's the whole Statue of Liberty out there giving, give us our, our, you know, our weak, you know, the humbled masses longing to breathe free, um, or even from uh, those Christian roots of, you know, biblically in the Bible, how you treat the outsider is, um, is not one of the 10 uh, commandments, but it's certainly talked about throughout the old, and you, you know, you are, you're the scholar. Um, so correct me if I'm right here or, or if I'm wrong here. But that that is a main theme throughout the Old Testament is that is is the the outsider in your midst gets your protection even above your own family Hmm. that you you protect the traveler coming through or that outsider and that value you know and I think if those were values that we said these are the things that we we want our immigration system to be we want it to be compassionate to help the individual who is who is a refugee and is not is not safe in their own land. We want it to be something that provides the workforce that we need. We want it, you know, I think those would be things that the masses could get behind. Uh, right. And it would be more difficult for these other entities, kind of the darker forces to move in and confuse yeah. the issue. If we first just yeah. acknowledge those things that we want to see take place. Absolutely. And by acknowledging those things, when you see the quote unquote darker forces come in, they're easier to identify. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, just like, you know, there, there's nothing wrong with making money, but if we're all burning Matt, Bernie Matt off, you know, and ripping off, wasn't it him that ripped yes, off? Yes, everybody? yes. A giant Ponzi scheme. You know, well, we can't assume that everybody in the world is a Bernie, but at the same time, you know, we need to identify mm-hmm. something, a direction where we're headed. And that way, when a Bernie shows up, we'll know, hey, that doesn't align with where we're headed. And so let's, let's handle that conflict now because we see that you're headed in another direction. Let's handle that conflict and figure out how we're going to deal with it. Because this is what the we have agreed to head where we've agreed to head. 
And, you know, maybe some of those other things end up being a completely different conflict. You know, it's maybe about putting, because again, it's that perception of the conflict that really creates, you know, the, the difficulty that if we do have, you know, for example, going back to the idea of racism, if, if there's these darker forces moving in, there's another conflict, but maybe there's a shared value that we could get to that would help us yes. get at the root of where that racism comes from so that we can maybe actually treat that disease <laughs> uh, from yeah. that perspective that um, because I, I feel like where I've encountered racism more often, it's not really been what I was told as a kid it was, that it was just a hatred for a person with a different skin color. It was actually a fear of mm -hmm. people who had a different way of doing things, a different way of talking, a different that they felt like they wouldn't be accepted in. You know, when I see, and, and I have no problem because I, when I'm in a store and I hear people talking Spanish, I just jump into the conversation and talk with them <laughs> and just say, hey, how are you doing? But I have been with people that got very uncomfortable when they heard someone speaking a different language because they felt left out. They felt like someone might be talking sure. about them behind their back. And the problem was 100% their own. I, did, I mean, people can speak whatever language they want. <laughs> and if you have troubles with that, that is a personal problem that you need to work on. But either way, it wasn't really an issue of hating those people. It was an issue of fear. It was an issue of their um, feeling unsafe in that environment, where if we could help them realize that they are safe in that environment, that nationalism or racism would be abated by creating a win-win. You are safe now in this environment. You don't need to worry because we've created an, um, a space that shows you that you're safe in this environment. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I feel as though we've solved the world's problems today, Steve. <laughs> let's 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 write it down. Let's send it to the world. Let them know that go. it's solved. Um, that we just need to find these win-wins. <laughs> there you go. Well, what I will do is I will definitely in the show notes put a link to the article that I had posted, and uh, certainly. As always, gang, love to hear your feedback. If you would just drop us a note at furloughedmailbox at gmail.com, feel free to disagree. We can have some conflict here, right? Absolutely. Uh, definitely want to bring you into this and, and hear your thoughts. And if you've got ideas for other programs, certainly feel free to throw that in there as well or someone that you may want to hear as a guest and, and certainly welcome any insights that you have. Um, Steve, any, any parting thoughts before we wrap up today here. I think you, you said it really well. I mean, just another invitation. Um, of course, Leonard and I are sharing our views and how we see things and they're not necessarily always compatible one with another. Um, but you know, if we've gotten this wrong, let us know, let us know where we're missing. Let us know our blind spots. I think, especially when it comes to bias, um, no one will ever see their own bias we need someone else to point them out to us. And so I'm committed to do my best. Um, if someone wants to point out my bias to me, to listen to that with an open mind. So please feel free to reach out to us uh, and help us see the things that we're missing. Absolutely. All right, Steve, thank you. So once again, folks, we'll wrap up another episode of our furloughed podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And again, love to hear from you. So again, don't be reluctant to shoot us an email to furloughedmailbox at gmail.com. 
with that, we'll say goodbye until next week. And uh, just a quick reminder, of course, as always, we are sponsored by UpwardsUnlimited.com. That's Upwords, W-O-R-D-S, Unlimited.com. And they are a group of people that will help you with your conversations, connections, collaboration, and community. So check out their website for more details. Until next week, bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-b